Good morning, everybody, again. I feel like I haven't preached here <laughs> 100 years, <laughs> but I know it's not really that long. So we're continuing in our um, theme on Philippians, a life worth living, and um, I'm doing a bit of a smaller section, actually, than originally planned because uh, there's so much in it, I ran out of time and thought we'd stop there. So in case you weren't here last week, um, I just want to give us a bit of context so that we can better understand where Paul is and who he's writing to and what he's writing about. So the context is, whoa, 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 go back. The context is here that Paul is in prison. He is in prison, probably under house arrest, and probably in Rome. His experience of prison will be that he is chained to the Praetorian Guards. And we had that um, amusing idea last week that um, these guards were on a rotor and every time it was their turn, there they were chained to Paul as Paul preached to them about Jesus. And they probably maybe were desperate to not be on that bit of the rotor, but that's how it was because prisoners were chained to their guards. It wasn't a comfortable time. It wouldn't have been an easy time. And yet you get the impression from Paul's letters that somewhere in the midst of the struggle and the suffering and the imprisonment, he was full of joy and full of hope and with a growing and passionate love for Jesus. This letter is written to the church in Philippi, which was the first church plant in Europe. Philippi was a strategic city, it had been a very wealthy city and built upon that wealth, and it lived in the um, status as a wealthy city. It was on the trade route between the West and the East, so very strategic. And perhaps more important than that, extremely close to Paul's heart. He had planted this church, the first church in Europe, in a strategic location. And it was his church in that sense, and he loved it, and he loved the people there, and he feels very passionate about them. I want to take you back briefly into chapter 1 and to verse 27 before we go into chapter 2. In verse 27 of chapter 1, it says, Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence... I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. Throughout his letters in general, and particularly in this one, Paul is very concerned for their conduct, the way of life. He says, I want it to, to make sure it measures up, it honors the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the benchmark. Does it honor Christ? It is also our benchmark. Does our conduct, does our way of life as individuals and as a church together, does it honor Jesus Christ? Does it measure up to him? Because that's a key question that sort of runs through this letter. Does the way that they're living honor Jesus Christ and the gospel? Because he says then, whether I come and see you or I only hear about you, I will know that you stand firm as one man. He is not just chained to a Roman soldier, he is in Rome. Everywhere he looks are Roman soldiers. Philippi was also a Roman colony city, so Roman soldiers were very um, common there as well. As Paul looks around him, he takes an image from the soldiers in Rome, an image from the battlefield. 
It's the image of the way that the soldiers used to fight together with a rectangular shield, and they would stand shoulder to shoulder, protecting one another, secure together in their oneness. And the way they protected one another, it looked a bit like this. As long as they didn't break rank, then the Roman battalions were virtually invincible. And that's a really important thing for us to hear as we go through the rest of this chapter. Paul has a great concern in his letters for unity. Now, unity is not something that's particularly snazzy to talk about, but it's really, really important for the cause of the gospel. And I think that we've seen that, haven't we, over these last months as we've been working together for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says that they have a common purpose. It is the name of Jesus. It is his story. It is salvation through him. This is their common purpose. They may not agree on everything else, but they have this common purpose. They have a common enemy, And just in case you're not sure who that is, he's the father of lies. He's the accuser of the brethren. He's the angel of light. He is Satan. He masquerades as an angel of light. He is Satan. He is the devil. This is the enemy. Sometimes we get mistaken. We make other things the enemy. But actually, he is the enemy. He is behind everything that comes against the church. He is our common enemy, not other things or each other, in fact. We need to look out for one another's safety and protection. Paul says there will be struggles, there will be suffering, but we can get through it all and effectively advance the gospel. And it seems to me that this is the thought process, this standing together as one man, this common purpose, common enemy, this safety and protection, looking out for each other for the sake of the gospel. It is that thought process that Paul continues into chapter 2. So he starts in chapter 2 with this very small word, if. But it has huge consequences. If this Well, let's look at the if, first of all. And he uses a series of phrases. And we can easily just run through these phrases and not think about them. But I've just taken them apart. So there's truth, and then there's the consequences of that truth. The truth is being united with Christ, experiencing his love, knowing the Spirit, and having tenderness and compassion. That's the truth that Paul uh, Paul talks about here. It says, if you're united in Christ. Now, in Harrogate at Spring Harvest a couple of weeks back now, we had John Sentamy, Archbishop of York, speaking very powerfully, saying, you are either in Christ or you are not in Christ. You cannot be partly in Christ. So when he says, if you are in Christ, well, either the answer is, yes, I am, or it's, no, I'm not. If you are in Christ, then we are all in on the same basis, aren't we? The basis is grace. It's grace. We all enter into Christ on the same basis, the grace that he offers to us. We can't earn it. We're not good enough. We don't deserve it. But we are in Christ because he has allowed us to be in Christ. If you are in Christ, you are. End of the story. You're not partly in. You're not out. You're in. If you are in Christ... If you have experienced his love, 
Well, I hope that you have, because if you're in Christ, you've experienced the saving, relentless, boundless love of, Christ, of God for you. You've experienced that. Do you know his spirit? Yes, because you cannot say Jesus is Lord without the Holy Spirit of God in you. You cannot cry out, Abba, Father, without the Holy Spirit of God in you. Tenderness and compassion. That's that feeling with thing. You know, we talked last year about splagnitzomai, that gut-wrenching, deep-down feeling with tenderness, compassion, feeling with. He says, if any of these things, and the consequences of that, encouragement. In Christ is the basis for our unity. We are encouraged by that. He said that we are comforted by the love of God for us, aren't we? Good, half of you are. And that experience of the fellowship of the Spirit. And the word he uses there is koinonia, or koinonia, depending on how people pronounce it, which used to be really popular to talk about. seems to have gone off the radar. But the word there in the Greek ancient world was used for the fellowship between what used to be known as Siamese, which we now refer to as conjoined twins. It was the word that was used for the fellowship of their blood together. Now, that's a bit more radical than having a cup of coffee in the family center, isn't it? The fellowship of being so bound together that in those days, if one died, the other would die. That's what fellowship is in the Spirit of God. It's that close, bound together. If you are united with Christ, if you have any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, well, if you say if, after that you have to say then. If this, then this. He says, make my joy complete. Now just think for a moment. Imagine yourself in a Roman prison. Okay, it's worse than that. Think about it again. All right, it's damp. It probably stinks. You probably don't have much decent food. You're chained to a Roman soldier, so you probably have welts around your wrist. You can't have freedom because you're in prison. Make my joy complete by getting me out of here, by giving me comfort, by, by feeding me, by taking away this struggle and this suffering that I am enduring. I think that might be what I might have prayed. Probably the rest of you are more spiritual than me. He says, make my joy complete by being like-minded. By being like-minded. That doesn't mean that we have to agree on everything because that's probably not going to happen. <laughs> but having the same attitude and approach, a unity of mind around the gospel of Jesus Christ and what our purpose is here, having the same love, that commitment to living in the love of Christ to ourselves and to other people, being one in spirit and purpose. Paul says, if you're like that, my joy will be complete. Wow. I'm not sure if that's what we expect him to write. If this is your truth and your reality that you are in Christ and you've experienced his love and the fellowship of his spirit, then that needs to work out in the way you think, what's in your heart, and the way that you choose, the choices that you make. And then my joy will be 
complete. So, so far, so good, eh? Maybe we'll just stop there, because that's the nice bit, and we can all go and have a cup of coffee in the family centre. But then he goes on, doesn't he? He says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Ah, ah, that's not so easy, is it? That bit of it. That's not so comfortable. And Paul goes on and he talks about these things. Selfish ambition. Vain conceit, or maybe an easier word for us to understand, is self-importance. William Barclay said this, prestige is for many people an even greater temptation than wealth. We want to be known, to be important, to be accepted, to be better than something deep in us. And self-centeredness. In case you haven't noticed the key words there. (laughs) At the heart of it all is me. I am at the heart of it all. I am the center of my world. Everything revolves around me. Everything revolves around me. So for the last year and a half, I've been focused quite a lot on the book of James. So I'm really quite relieved to be looking at the book of, written by Paul. And I uh, was teaching it um, in th- the whole of James in three 50-minute sessions the other week. But James, I learned, is likely to have been the earliest written book in the whole of the New Testament. I don't know if you knew that. Written probably in the early 40s, so only 10 years after Jesus' death. And as we read what Paul wrote, there are so many echoes from the book of James. And I just want to read some of them to you because James was the half-brother of Jesus. So he spent quite a long time with Jesus and probably picked up a few things along the way. And he's writing this letter to the first churches scattered around through Syria. And then chapter 3 And verse 13, he says this, Who is wise and understanding among you, let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice." And then in chapter 4, and we'll just read the first couple of verses. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. James is a bit like a sledgehammer in his approach to speaking to people. But you get the message, don't you? These are the things that were so important to James because they are things that are so destructive in our hearts, in our lives, in our churches. These are the things that James was concerned would compromise the gospel and corrupt the church. Self-centeredness is the heart 
of the human problem. Self-centeredness is the root of sin. Martin Luther put it like this. It's like man curved in on himself. I like that. I think it's really graphic. Malcolm Muggeridge talked about the tiny dark dungeon of the ego. William Temple wrote this, I am the center of the world I see. Where the horizon is depends on where I stand. Education may make my self-centeredness less disastrous by widening my horizon of interest. So far, it's like climbing a tower which widens the horizon for physical vision while leaving one still the center and standard of reference. It's still about me. I may have managed to masquerade it by knowing about what's on the horizon, by understanding the view, by being able to talk about other people's stuff, but I am still the center. It's still from my perspective that I am looking out there. Tim Keller writes this. In his book, Sickness Unto Death, Soren Kierkegaard says, it is the normal state of the human heart to try to build its identity around something beside God. Spiritual pride is the illusion that we are competent to run our own lives, achieve our own sense of self-worth, and find a purpose big enough to give us meaning in life without God. Spiritual pride is the illusion that we are competent to run our own lives without God. And and many of us believe that, that we can run our own lives. Many of us sat in this building actually believe that. Practically, we believe it. We might not say that we do, but actually, in reality, that's how we live. We seek to run our own lives and God is bolted on the side. Tim Keller, in his amazing book, explores the thing about ego a little bit further. He talks about the word in 1 Corinthians, which is the word pride, an unusual term, not dissimilar from ego or self, meaning to be puffed up to almost the extended edge of that, to be puffed up almost to the point of exploding, that kind of sense. And he talks about four things that are are so important here in the way that we understand what Paul is writing about in Philippians. He says that the ego, understood like that, is empty. Because it's overinflated, there is an emptiness at the center of it all. Kierkegaard says if you put anything in the middle of the place that was originally made for God, it's going to be too small and it's going to rattle around. And we do that. We keep throwing in things, don't we, to make ourselves feel satisfied, to make ourselves feel full. But everything that we put in, in the place where God is designed to be, just rattles around. It continues to create discomfort and tension and frustration and dissatisfaction because it doesn't fit. There is an emptiness that continues in our hearts if we have put other things in the place that is created for God. He also talks about it being painful. Let me ask you a question. When do you notice your toes? When do you notice your toes? Somebody answer me. When they hurt, when your toenail has grown, when you've got a blister because you've worn some new boots and you haven't worn them in first. 
Our toes hurt. Our toes are painful. We notice them when they hurt. I didn't wake up this morning and think, wow, my shoulders are amazing today and my elbows are just working 100%. I did wake up and think, exactly a year on, my knees still hurt because <laughs> the London Marathon trashed them forever. My knees still hurt. I am conscious of my knees because they hurt. We are conscious of our self, our ego, when it hurts. When we're snubbed, or we feel we are. When we're ignored. When we trip over and fall flat on the floor and feel stupid and think that everyone will laugh at us. When we're not chosen. When it hurts then all the attention is drawn to that part of us, isn't it? He also says that it's busy. It's busy. It's busy because it's always trying to get attention. It's always saying, look at me. Look at me. Notice me. I don't know how many of you have watched Shrek. Remember the donkey? Pick me. Pick me. We have a little joke in our house about that. Pick me. Choose me. Give me strokes. Give me affirmation. Mostly it's when we are comparing ourselves to other people. We can do that as a church, by the way, not just as individuals. Well, I'm better than. I'm more than. We have more than. And as soon as we get the levels become equal, then, well, that doesn't work anymore, does it? We always need to be a little bit above for that to work for the advantage of our self, our ego. We're always trying to build that self-esteem CV that we can present and go, look at me. And of course, it's always fragile, isn't it? You know, when you inflate something to its far degree, it's unbelievably fragile, isn't it? Because as quickly as it's inflated, it can, with the prick of a pin, be deflated. It's filled with air. It's not solid. So it can easily be deflated. And we are fragile, aren't we? I mean, don't imagine that all the other people in the room aren't, because they all are. Don't imagine that it's only you who's going, oh, don't talk about me, because we're all going, don't talk about me. We're all like this. It's the essence of who we are. And what we really need, what we really need, is something of a Copernican revolution. You remember Copernicus, the astronomer? physicist. He was back in the day when people believed that the earth was the center of the universe and everything revolved around the earth. Because it's all about us, isn't it? So clearly we are the center. And Copernicus said, actually earth is not the center. The sun is the center. 
Well, that was hugely unpopular. Like, hugely unpopular, especially from the church, interestingly enough. But Copernicus stood his ground and he said, no, I can demonstrate to you that the sun is the center and everything else revolves around it. You know, what we need is a Copernican revolution because from the day we are born, frankly, probably from before then, we are at the center. I am at the center From the day we cry, I need feeding. Change me. Make me go to sleep. I hurt. Sort me out. From the day we are born, we are the center of our world. And what we need to see and live out is that Jesus is the center of our world. He is the center and everything else revolves around him, not the other way around. Everything else takes its place in relation to him. And at the heart of humility, which is what Paul goes on to speak about, is seeing myself in relation to Jesus. Seeing myself in relation to Jesus before I see myself in relation to anyone else. That's the heart of humility. It's seeing myself as Jesus sees me. Whether I am at home, whether I have just led worship, whether I have spoken on a big platform, it doesn't matter. It's all about how Jesus sees me. And humility is when I see myself as Jesus sees me and when I am like that I see everyone else in the right way too as Jesus sees them C.S. Lewis said this humility is not thinking less of yourself it is thinking of yourself less it's good that because it's easy to remember <laughs> humility is not thinking less of yourself it's, this is not a Uriah heap I am terribly humble it's not that it is thinking of ourselves Less. Keller says, the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It's both those things. It's not, it's not I'm really wonderful, nor am I a miserable worm. It's thinking of myself less and as Jesus sees me. It's all about the kind of foundation we build our lives on. My final quote from him, he says this, you see the verdict is in, and now I perform on the basis of the verdict. Because he loves me. He accepts me. I don't have to do things just to build up my resume. I do not have to do things to make me look good. I can do things for the joy of doing them. I can help people to help people. Not so that I can feel better about myself. Not so I can fill up the emptiness. What is our foundation? We are in Christ. We are loved by him. That's it. That is it. Nothing else needs to be there. Just that. And if we are really rooted on that foundation, then we give out of it and we live because of it. And we are safe and secure in that. And then Paul goes on. And he sums it up like this. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ 
Jesus. Oh, well, that's okay then, isn't it? Because we'll find that really easy, won't we? Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Be like Jesus. That's the essence of discipleship, isn't it? That we're following him one step at a time, close to him, to be like him. Be like Jesus. And there's plenty of ink that have been spilled over these few verses, and I haven't spilled very much more at all, so it's all right. You won't be here forever. (laughs) And when we read these verses from verse 5 onwards to 11... It could be that it's the opportunity for for us to discuss the theological approaches to the Incarnation with special emphasis on kenotic theology. If anyone would like to do that. What does it mean? What does it mean that Jesus was like God and then he emptied himself? What does that mean? What did he empty himself of? Of When was he filled up again? Where did all the empty stuff go? Did he put it in a cupboard somewhere, waiting for him to come back to heaven? What happened? If he was still God and still man, but he emptied himself of... Well, you know what? I spent a good percentage of my degree doing that, and we're not going to cover it in 30 seconds this morning. We could do that. We could talk about that. It's not that it's unimportant, but maybe it's not the most important. We could spend a bit of time talking about whether or not these verses from verse 6 were an early church hymn that the church used to sing that was part of its liturgy. Well, maybe it was, but if it was, well, who wrote it? And which church did it start in? And where did it come from? And why has Paul suddenly written it down here? And, well, it would be nice, but does it matter? You see, in these verses, Paul helps us to look at Jesus. He helps us to look at Jesus. He says Jesus gave up his natural status, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God either something to be grasped. Just think of a small child who wants their toy at this moment. Not something to be grasped or, or something to cling on to or something to get hold of. He, he didn't take that. He chose to be downwardly mobile. Whoever chooses that. He chose to demote himself. The incarnation was the total opposite of self-ambition. We normally want to read the rags to riches story, but this is the other way around. He let go of that. He let go of his social status, who being in nature God, King of kings, Lord of lords, made himself, made himself nothing, nothing, like nothing. Nothing from the highest high to nothing took on the nature of a servant. Better there would be slave, slave, no rights, no freedom, nothing. The reverse of social climbing. He gave up his legal status, his right to life. At some point, we will not be alive any longer. But probably for most of us, 
in this room, we won't give up our lives. Our life will end. But Jesus gave up his right to life. He gave it up. He died in the form of death reserved for slaves as a criminal. He gave it all up. I've been thinking a lot about this passage over the last week or so. And uh, earlier on this week, I got to spend a couple of days um, on a retreat with Open Doors um, that works with a suffering church. And uh, something struck me, and I just want to share that with you, really. Um, So one of the guys there called Ron, um, who's very senior in Open Doors, worked for them, uh, and uh, amongst other things, for maybe 20 or 30 years, um, involved in strategy. He's travelled all around the world and spoken to most people that you would have heard of uh, or not heard of. <laughs> but, um, and he was recounting this story about a Chinese believer that he interviewed for Time magazine. And uh, this guy's name was Wong Min Dao. He was in prison for 23 years and most of that time was in solitary confinement. He was released in 1980 And at that point, the premier of China was Deng Xiaoping. And at that point of his release, uh, the premier sent a telex to the guards at the labor camp where he was to be released from. And it just had this little phrase on it, does he still believe? After 23 years in solitary confinement in some of the worst conditions known to human beings, does he still believe? Well, the answer was yes, which wasn't going to look good for the Chinese government. But what he said was, um, when he was interviewed uh, some years after that, so they came and they uh, took him away in the dead of night, like they do. And he said these words, everything that had given me meaning as a Christian leader was taken away from me. His wife, his children, his church, his books, his status, everything that he was, everything that gave me meaning as a Christian leader was taken away from me. The only thing left, now listen to this, the only thing left was to get to know Christ. The only thing left was to get to know Christ. And so for 23 years, in solitary confinement in China, he got to know Jesus. And I wonder, reading this wonderful passage, whether Paul's experience was not dissimilar. He could no longer travel freely. He could no longer visit the churches. They sometimes had people visit briefly, but there weren't people around him all the time. He was getting older. The end of his life was coming closer. Everything that he was as an apostle of Jesus had been pulled right in to just being in this simple space where he continued to get to know Jesus. And I wonder, in those moments when he wrote, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, that miracle on the road to Damascus came flooding back to him as he saw the light that blinded him and he encountered Jesus Christ. 
And I wonder whether he started to reflect on what he knew of Jesus. And these words here were words of worship that spilled out of his heart as he thought and thought about who Jesus was and what he had given and what he had let go of and the fact that he had come and he took the form of a servant. He became like us. He gave himself on a cross. He died. Paul knows that Jesus said, if anyone wants to gain his life, he must lose it. Paul knew that Jesus said that the Son of Man came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He knew. And so he concludes by getting to that place of praise and adoration. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord was the first affirmation of the early church. Jesus is Lord. Not Caesar, who called himself Lord and God. Not my ego, which so easily climbs back on the throne again. I don't know about yours. Not any other idol that I choose to put in the place. But Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord is the heart cry of the disciple, isn't it? Jesus is Lord, expressed in worship from our mouths and worship in our lives. Everything we are and we do expresses that Jesus is Lord. He is on the throne and I am not.